0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes. As we're rapidly approaching Christmas, I want to remind everybody that our Advent book just hit Amazon. It is available for order, both paperbacks and Kindle. Just search Advent Fakes, F E I X. But then you're going to have to tell Amazon that you really did mean fakes and not Felix. Otherwise, it's not going to come up. So we've got those. If you've donated to our ministry this year, as a thank you, we'll be sending those out to you shortly. Probably get those either end of this week or beginning of next week so that you can celebrate Advent with your family as we lead up to Christmas. And uh, there's a, a, a lot of amazing stuff in there. Great uh, devotions for each weekend, but there's also great hymns. There are uh, some reflections on the Advent season, the Christmas season. So I'm really proud of it. And really excited for you all to get a copy of it. We are blazing the trail into what I think is the hardest, most difficult of the objections to Christianity. We're doing this week and next week, what's usually called the problem of evil. This week we're doing uh, one side of that issue, which is kind of why do bad things happen to good people? And then next week we're going to do what might be considered a bit more theological look at this, How can God and evil coexist? Is God the author of evil? Is he responsible for evil? How do you work out a good God, pre-creation even, with the existence? So this week, I think this is the most common and most formidable of the objections to Christianity, is what do we do about pain and suffering, evil, if we believe in a good God? And as we do in every one of these episodes, we want to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning, fleshing out this argument in its strongest form. We don't we don't want to be uh, arguing with cliches or platitudes. We don't want to be beating up straw men. We want to give the strongest,
1: steeliest version of the argument. Well, and Cole, this argument, as you know, has been made uh, very strongly in various forms throughout history. But the thing I would point out is this objection, if you will, predates Jesus Christ. This is something that humans have suffered and struggled with as suffering part of human existence. This question has been part of human existence. And maybe one of the better forms of this goes all the way back to, oh, approximately 400 years before Christ and Plato. Plato has a
0: dialogue called Euthyphro, and this is to be known as the Euthyphro Argument. And I would say this is a philosophical statement of the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And while it isn't what you commonly hear people talk about when it comes to pain and suffering, it's a very good formalized uh, statement of this argument. So it goes like this. You have three premises. God is all powerful. God is good. And evil exists in the world. So the euthyphro argument goes like this. Only two of those can be true at the same time. If God is all powerful and all good, then there should be no evil in the world. If God is all powerful and there is evil, then he must not be good. If God is good and there is evil, then he must not be all powerful. You can only have two of the three uh, to have a logically consistent universe. So which is it? Is, Is God all good and all powerful? Then why is there evil? Or does God maybe not have these qualities in the same way that we think he does? Because most people would be inclined to admit that number three is obviously true. There is evil. There is pain Mm -hmm. and suffering in the world. Therefore, we need to doubt premise one, God is all powerful, or premise two, God is really good. And again, as you said, this was not a Christian. This is not an attack against the Christian God. This was an attack against any conception of God. And in fact, one of the things that's really lurking in the background of any argument about the problem of evil is it's actually kind of a privilege to have an argument about the problem of evil, because without a God and what I would argue without the Christian God, you don't have the problem of evil. You just have evil. (laughs) You don't have any way to make sense about it. The alternatives to arguing about God being all good and all powerful is there is no good. There is no all powerful God. It's just evil. And there's, there's no way to make any more meaning out of that. And that's a pretty nihilistic view, but that is
1: the alternative. Well, and if you're a consistent Darwinist, you know, I think Keller makes this point in one of his books, and it's, it's an obvious point about Darwinism. If you believe in survival of the fittest as a selection mechanism, which is our secular worldview, although I would argue not many people actually really believe this because it's too abhorrent. If you believe in natural selection, then what we often what we call as evil, uh, the uh, oppression of weak members of society, the killing of weak members of society is simply natural selection at work. But you're right, Cole, that's a very, very dark universe in which to inhabit. You know, there's a lot of ways of phrasing this argument that are maybe more
0: resonant from a popular level. I sometimes hear this as... Um, framed in the language of prayer. You pray and pray and pray for God to do something and your worst fears come true.
1: What was God doing
0: during that? You know what, how how was, how, it's not just the, well, sometimes God answers no. If God really heard that prayer and knew how sincere you were, why wouldn't he answer it? Or why Mm -hmm. wouldn't he at least give you an explanation? I mean, I think the, the best framing of that, part of this argument in terms of the personal Christian experience of pain and suffering when we worship and serve a good and powerful God is the movie Silence, which many people, or the book Silence, where you have these priests who are missionaries, they're being tortured, they're praying for God's rescue, and God is silent. You know, what do you do when God is silent? He allows suffering to happen. He allows these one of these priests to lose his faith. You kind of throw up your hands like, God, what are what are you doing there? And, th- and this is a seed of doubt for many people. If God won't intervene in those circumstances, then what is God really good for? See, so that's mm-hmm. one popular way of kind of viewing this
1: argument. What are, what are some ways that you hear? Uh, that, that definitely is one. Another is uh, just the idea of people who don't deserve bad things to happen. They're already on the margins of society and it seems like bad things happen to them. And how could God really uh, be a just God? How can it be just or fair or right for God to allow those people to have evil things? And as the Old Testament talks a lot about, sometimes the evil people prosper. And so that sense of injustice or unfairness is another way I hear this phrased a lot. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, the Old Testament talks about this a lot. The Why do the wicked...
0: Prosper and the righteous suffer. It's the reversal Mm -hmm. of of this problem of evil. It's not just I'm suffering, but even if I'm not, the people who don't love God, they're having wonderful lives, right? And I think there are some great little apologetic pieces in the Old Testament about this. Some of the Psalms actually take this argument apart in terms of what's happening with the righteous and the wicked. Um, Another thing too is just not being able to see the meaning in our suffering, and I think sometimes this is pastoral care poorly applied where we jump too quickly in a season of suffering or discomfort to say well you know god has a plan god has a purpose if you just believe enough you would see the purpose here and then you're left there not seeing the purpose and you're wondering am i a good right. christian is something is there something defective with my faith is there something defective in my prayer life sometimes we can try to tie things up in a bow almost as a way to guard God against our doubts. We try to tie right. things up in a bow too quickly. Mm-hmm. And we like Job's friends give really bad advice to people who are suffering. That's a good point. Um, the last thing is I think you can't really state this topic without referring to Romans eight twenty eight, 28, uh, which is common knowledge to pe- even people that are not Bible scholars. God works all things for good. Um, that verse, I think, is maybe misquoted even verbally, which which tends to make this a difficult question. But I definitely think it's misquoted theologically and applied to this question. Uh, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose are two pretty big uh, provisos on that and telling us where it's aimed and and when we'll see it. We, we may not always see the good coming from something. And so if we apply it Kind of in a rubber stamp type way, all bad things will be good. That just right. experientially is not true. And uh, that may not be true throughout the course of your whole life, which it, it, again, if it's applied that way, it makes you think, well, is that, is God falling down on that promise? Is God, but, you know, not mm-hmm. going to fulfill
1: what he said? No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, to me, the approach to this, you and I were talking about this is, this argument is intended to sow doubt about God's goodness or God's power or even God's existence. And it is rests on some assumptions. And you talked about the idea of doubting our doubts. And I think this is a question where that approach is extremely helpful. This is something that Tim Keller
0: uh, popularized in his second book on apologetics. He's got his first book, Reason for God, which is operating in maybe a more conventional apologetic space. How do we have good reason to believe in God? And then later uh, towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called making sense of God, which is almost a step back to say, let's Mm -hmm. let's actually go back even further and start to talk about the ways that God might start to make sense of experience and the, the human condition and one of the phrases that he uses in that book is we need to start doubting our doubts. We need to start actually, mm-hmm. we're, we're all about deconstructing things when it comes to faith and traditional morals and Western civilization. But have we actually tried to deconstruct some of these doubts? We we too often right. take our doubts for granted. And so I think actually one of the best ways to deal with the problem of evil is to start to doubt the doubts that are embedded in the problem of evil. So, okay, God can't be all powerful and good and there be evil in the world. That settles it. Tim Keller would come along. We would come along and say, have you doubted that doubt? Have you applied the same level of scrutiny to that doubt that you did to the Mm -hmm. thing that you were doubting? And uh, we've got four ways to kind of doubt the doubts in the problem of evil. And uh, these are all things that would maybe take one more step back and say, "What, what is actually there? What's being assumed? in the doubt about God's goodness or human suffering that would cause us maybe to understand this issue a little bit more fully. And I think in total would cause us to understand um, how
1: there can be a good God and suffering in the world. That's exactly right. Maybe the first place I like to start is on the first assumption. We've got a couple of assumptions wrapped up in that idea of evil happening to good people. And the first thing is, I would say is this, that we, as 21st century uh, people in general, expect things to go well for us. You need to stop for just a moment and let that sink in. A 100 years ago, certainly 200 years ago, certainly throughout most of human history, people did not expect life to be just smooth and always good things happening. This question presupposes that that's what life's supposed to be. Well, that's a very modern assumption. And I want to challenge that assumption just a little bit, because we do believe as Christians we live in a fallen world. In a fallen world, what we call evil and suffering, 200 years ago, people called normal life. That didn't make it good. It didn't make it pleasant, but they would not have thought to say, why does God let a fallen world exist? I mean, that's really what you're saying at that point. So, the idea of is what's happening to us really unjustified suffering, or is this just life? What is it? Thomas Hobbes, who famously said, this is a little piece of a quote, that life is nasty, brutish, and short. And, you know, back in the 1500s, 1600s, that was true. But at the same time, people didn't really think of it the way we do. They thought of, this is what life as fallen humanity in a fallen world looks like. And I think they uh, probably, without the expectation that their life would be smooth, had fewer recriminations against God that their life wasn't smooth. And so I think sometimes we need to doubt our expectations a little bit. Yeah, this is a bit of the, it's what, it,
0: it all depends on what you're used to phenomenon. Mm-hmm. If you're used to a high level of suffering, instances of suffering don't bring about quite as cataclysmic a response as they do when you're used to very little suffering. And that is certainly true, even just in the last 50 to a hundred years. One of the things you notice is uh, people constantly talk about the pain, The wor- one of the worst pains you can experience is to lose a child, which is true. And the pain now and the pain then is probably unchangeable. Pain is pain. But the expectation a hundred years ago, especially if you read about Christians in the middle ages and up through the centuries, this was a very common experience. That pain, again, I'm not taking away from the pain at all. That pain was something that almost every family would have known. Mm -hmm. Now, thank goodness, because of modern medicine and so many other things, it is not a pain that as many families know, but some do. The difference now is, that particular instance might be the thing that caused you to say, the threshold has passed. That is right. not the kind of thing that a good God could allow. Their threshold was different. You right. know, their, their threshold was different because of their experience. So there is a little bit of contextual uh, framework here that we need to apply. Their outlook on the common sufferings of their day uh, would lead them to say that something like that was much more part of normal life and not part of the argument against God because of suffering. We, because of what we experience, take instances of suffering and say, I could I could make this work, you know, I could work this out in my mind up to a certain point, but since this happened, I can't right. square a good God with that. That line right. has moved throughout history, and we just need to be aware, again, not that, I'm not saying at all that, the pain is different, or that you shouldn't be sorrowful. What I am saying is from a theological standpoint, we have to be aware of the fact that the line of what could a good God allow is very different in our day than it was even 200 years ago. Exactly.
1: And you know, a second assumption related, very related to that, is the assumption that's built into the idea of uh, why would a good God let these bad things happen to good people, and I'm focused on the good person there for a moment, is we really have a sense of entitlement. There's an assumption of entitlement, meaning that if indeed there is a good God, and if indeed he is all-powerful, then in some sense, I am entitled to him to take care of any potential suffering for me. There's an, a sense of entitlement or a sense of deserving as though God owes me something. And you know, the interesting thing is that as Christians... Mm-hmm we understand the nature of fallen humanity and sin is actually, we don't think God owes us anything. In fact, if God owes us anything, if justice were really done, we probably deserve death, according to the scripture. We deserve separation from God. We We deserve suffering. And so the idea here is that instead of looking at Uh, our lives as God pouring grace into our lives and look what God has spared me from. I'd take the flip side. This argument is a very biased to the negative argument that says if things don't go perfect, I have an issue with God. Whereas I think most humanity, not just Christians, most humanity a few hundred years ago would say, well, maybe there really is a God because good things have happened to me. Once again, it's kind of based on that idea of expectation. Yeah there's something kind of
0: interesting in this argument because this second point brings up the fact that we do we are arguing from the premise that there is a guarantor of a certain kind of good life right to the conclusion that there may not be a guarantor of the good life so at, at once we're saying we are owed something somebody is out there to guarantee us a certain kind of life and then we're not experiencing it this is actually not an argument against the existence of God. This is an argument against the character of God. So this, mm-hmm. this argument, this part of the argument assumes that there is a God and assumes that he is capable. It's attacking the second premise of, is God really good? Is he really doing his job? Now, after these first two points though, you know, astute listeners are going to say, so let me, let me summarize this. Here's what you guys have said so far. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, well, these things aren't as bad as you think they are, certainly not as bad as they could be, and you're not as good as you think you are, certainly not as good as you could be. This is a little bit of a beat down so far in these first two uh, <laughs> responses to the problem of evil. The second two are maybe a little bit more uh, positive in finding what might be happening in these sufferings. So the first two, if they've reframed suffering, certainly reframed our perspective on suffering, what are we actually promised? You know, Jesus right. says things like, if they treated me this way, are they not going to treat you this way? You know, he was serious about that. Right. Uh, if we refra- reframe the way that we approach suffering and what we expect, how might we view um, what suffering is and what we should expect in suffering?
1: In these next two points, that's a great question, and and I'm I'll stand by your summary of the first point, point. and I would stand by that summary for Christians <laughs> and for non Christians the idea that we expect life to go well and we have no basis for that expectation and we think that we deserve it and we have no ex- we have no basis whether you're a darwinist whether you're a christian whether you're a buddhist no one can provide a rational expectation for that here's the difference with christianity so you've got all of humanity in the same boat but here's what's different about our god there really is a good god and he really is all powerful and his promise to us about suffering and about difficulties, and even about evil, is that it is purposeful. He does not say to me, Terry, you will know the purpose. Sometimes I do. I've lived enough life to realize that things that I thought were bad, give it a year or two years, and I'd say, wow, that was actually one of the best things that happened to me, and I thought it was a bad thing at the time. Now, I realize you're going to be jumping at and saying, well, there's some things that are universally bad. Yes, there are. Get to that in a minute. But just admit with me that there are things that have happened to you you thought were bad or, you know, even cataclysmic, uh, you know, lost my job, went bankrupt, whatever. And later you realize that, no, that did work for good. And so all I'm saying is that's a little down payment on God's promise that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called to his purpose, meaning to his first purposes, is God does have a purpose to make even bad things serve a good purpose. This goes back to the way that the biblical storyline runs,
0: and it's contrary enough to our innate expectation about life that we have to really be conformed by the Holy Spirit and by the word to the way that God says the universe functions. And God says the universe functions in such a way that there are certain goods, especially deep and complex goods that cannot come about without struggle and suffering. To put it in a very broad sense, God says that redemption is actually better. It's a deeper good. It's a more enduring good than innocence. The problem is the only way to get to redemption from innocence is through a fall of some kind, through sin, Mm -hmm. through destruction, through death. You know, resurrection is a very, is one of the highest goods. But resurrection can only happen after something has died. So there is inherent in the way that God has created us, in the way that God tells stories in the world, and we'll get to a little bit more of this next week, there is something inherent in the way that God uh, has ordered the universe that certain things cannot occur. Certain good things cannot right. come about without some suffering, some struggle, confusion, sin, brokenness, leading back to wholeness and redemption. And so this actually changes the way that we approach suffering. Like you said, that we, we know that there is purpose, and meaning in our suffering, which is actually kind of a different thing to say than the trite application of Romans 8.28, which is all things will eventually be good. Right. That Yeah, that is true If if by that you mean according to God's purpose, as opposed right. to temporal human enjoyment, which is kind of what we usually mean by good. So yes, we need to step back and we need to doubt our doubt about what the nature of suffering really is. And in this and in this third point, it is purposeful. God is actually doing something that can't come about any other way through suffering. And it's a long-term game. It's not
1: an immediate good. Right. Well, and that segues nicely into the final doubt that I have about the assumptions here. And again, what I'm about to say, I do not offer as an explanation for why bad things happen. I simply say you can imagine this being true. And in fact, it often is. And so I would say this is ammunition to say we should doubt this premise. And the premise is there are some things that are so bad that I don't see and I can't even imagine anything good coming out of it. Well, uh, and here's my first point. And this is a little hard truth. It's not always about me. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Look at the book of Job. Job was probably a great, I do believe there is such a thing as, quote, unjust suffering, meaning undeserved suffering. And so Job is a perfect example of that. Now, if you had gone back and said to Job, if God had said, Job, listen, I, you are going to go through some suffering, but I want you to trust me because literally billions of people, billions of people over the next 3,000 years Their lives will be made immeasurably better by this happening. Can you imagine Job saying, I'll do it? You can imagine that, can't you? If I came to any one of you and I said, if you're going to get cancer and you're going to suffer terribly and you don't really deserve it, and by the way, everybody's going to desert you and you're going to go bankrupt and you're going to have a very hard ending of your life and you don't really deserve this. But if you do this, something good or your child's life will be saved or your spouse's life will be saved. You would say yes in a heartbeat and you would accept the perceived injustice of that. Now, I'm not telling you, this is what always happened, but that is true enough that the only difference between that and potentially what happens is, is that we have to trust God that such a condition exists. Mm. So all I'm saying is it's not always about us. And the phrase I really like Cole is this. If, I knew what God knows, then I would do what God does. And I would argue that if we love God and we trust God, if we knew what he knows, we would probably willingly go through Mm. the unjust suffering. That's the faith that I have in God. So my point is, whether you believe that what I just said is true or not, hopefully it's enough evidence to convince you, you need to doubt this assumption, because there are certainly circumstances where this assumption is not true that there's no purpose in some things. They're just so bad, there can't be a purpose. I don't agree with that. That's a great, I love that line because it reinforces the fact that suffering
0: doesn't have to make sense to us to be meaningful. Right. God is the one who holds the whole universe and sees into every human heart and understands the big picture all at once, not us. And so we, if we try to measure that by our standards, we shouldn't be surprised that we come up with a gap between, right. you know, what we would do or what we think is going to amount to, uh, to something good uh, versus what God does. And, it, it you know, the response to that is always, well, that just doesn't seem very fair. You know, you have one person who has to mm-hmm. suffer, while you know, for the benefit of others. But the, <laughs> but the moment that comes out of your mouth, you got to realize, yeah, that's kind of the thing. You know, Second that's... Corinthians 5 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Yeah, That. yes, absolutely. God is telling a story where one person is treated unjustly so that many could benefit. It just isn't you and everybody else. It's it's his son, Jesus, who right. was the one who died uh, unjustly. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's a huge perspective changer. And this is in the context where Paul's talking in Second Corinthians about our sufferings. Our suffering should lead us to contemplate the death of Christ for us and uh, that our sufferings now join us with him and unite us with him toward the resurrection and the life. You know, the thing that I would like to point out here as we close is this is not a conversation I've ever had anybody, with anybody in a hospital room before. This is the kind of conversation you need to have before that happens. I've heard somebody say in the worst times, you need your best theology. And the time to build your best theology is when you're not suffering. Um, You know, it it does very little good to go to somebody who's suffering and saying, you know, maybe the reason you're suffering is because you think this is all about you. That would not be good uh, care in that moment. But if we've never had somebody make us think about the fact that our view of suffering is very us-centered, we won't suffer as well uh, as we would if we've spent some time thinking about that. So these are kind of hard truths uh, to meditate on, but they're things that we're going to need when we go through suffering to see what God has for us to see in suffering. But, you know, the closing point is one that you've made and I think is really a great kind of final word for this first half of the problem of evil which is the Bible actually spends almost no time doing a true defense of God against the problem of evil. The Bible actually kind of sidesteps this issue altogether. It does talk about what happens when you suffer. It does talk about, um, you know, why suffering might be allowed by God. But more than anything else, it talks more about what God's going to do for you in your suffering. Which I think is exactly. maybe the strongest thing that we have in the problem of evil is what has God promised to do when we suffer?
1: I agree. If you step back and think about this, and these are comforting thoughts in our time of suffering, because they are true and they can be held on to, is that our God suffered unjustly for us because he loved us that much. And his promise to us is that there will be purpose in our suffering, whether we can see it or not, but perhaps even greater in our moment of suffering is he will be with us. That's the promise you come back to over
0: and over again in the Bible. Eugene Peterson put it like this. He said, it's not always God's way to stop the fight, but it is always God's way to stand by the fighter. And that's the promise you get in scripture is that he will be with us. So this is part one, but it doesn't get us to the point of, so, okay, that's good. God is going to do something uh, when suffering happens, but Many will be wondering, but why is there suffering in the first place? Why is there evil in the first place? If God created everything, there's evil in the world. Is God to blame for suffering? Is God to blame for evil? Does he bear some responsibility for evil in the world? We will be addressing that question next week on the So We Speak podcast.